0: Hello, and welcome to the History of Egypt podcast. Episode 86, Doing God's Work. Today, we explore the aftermath of the political strife which followed the death of Amun-Hotep II. Egypt now has a new ruler, and he is ready to begin work. Today's episode is brought to you by Anon Forrest and Baruch Rothman. Folks, thank you kindly for donating. May Bess Guard your household and give you healthy children. The year is 1418 BCE, and Egypt has a new king at last. Allow me to introduce to you the Golden Horus, the son of Rei, Thutmose IV. His throne name is Men Keperu Rei, aka Enduring Other Forms of Rei. He is destined to be a minor but influential ruler in the annals of Egyptian history. To recap slightly, our new king Thutmose is about 18 years old. He was not a healthy man when he came to the throne. Studies of his mummy indicate that he may have suffered from a debilitating illness for much of his life. One of the currently favoured theories is that Thutmose IV lived with the condition epilepsy. If this is true, the king probably suffered occasional fits or seizures, which complicated his life and made daily business just that little bit harder. Then again, maybe they were actually quite helpful. It was one of these seizures in the form of a vision that had brought Tutmos to the throne of Egypt. Before coming to power, he had experienced a dream in which the great sphinx of Giza appeared to him, the Sphinx commanded Thutmose to clear sand away from its body and restore its condition. If Tutmos did this, he would become the next king. Well, the prince Thutmose had obeyed his divine vision, and a few months later, he was sitting on the throne as pharaoh. So Thutmose IV was now king, and the Sphinx's promise was fulfilled. It would have been so easy to simply leave the monument cleared of sand as it was. But anyone could see that the clearing wasn't going to last. Wind and sand would return, and in a few years, the monument would be reburied. What was really needed was some proactive work, some restoration, and some protection. Tutmos and his architects began to look at the Great Sphinx, and ask, how could they improve it? Pharaoh's plan was simple. He and his architects would construct a wall around the monument high enough to keep the worst of the wind and sand out. Then, they would add some more brickwork to the body of the Sphinx, restoring parts that had crumbled or deteriorated over the past thousand years. Finally, they would make some additions of their own, adding new features to the complex of the great god. Three little steps, but they added up to something big. The labourers of Pharaoh swept the Sphinx's enclosure free of all rubble and dust. As they did so, they uncovered the remains of Old Kingdom bricks and masonry, pieces that had fallen off the Sphinx over the centuries and laid buried. Now, the 18th dynasty workers took that masonry, patched it up, and restored it on the lion's body. By doing this, they helped to bring the Sphinx back to something like its original condition. Next, the king ordered a second stage of work around the monument as a whole, to protect the Sphinx from more sand encroachment, the Egyptians put up a long wall around the monument's north, west, and southern edges. This wall was mud brick, and the bricks were stamped with the cartouches of Totmos. This way, the new king would be forever associated with the Sphinx, and his protection of the monument would provide testimony for his good deeds on earth. It was a practical, but valuable step. Now, Tutmos didn't describe these construction projects in any detail, or at least not in any text that survives. So how do we know that he did this? Well, that comes from the archaeologists. Excavators at the Sphinx have found the remains of this ancient work. Bricks, masonry, traces of the king's name. The works done by Tutmoses' labourers have lasted long enough that they survive in the archaeological record. So, we can look to the story of this king and then see the truth of his propaganda in the physical record. It is a rare moment, a definitive synchronisation between history and archaeology. To the builders and brickmakers who did this fantastic work, and the men who oversaw it, let us say thank you. Finally, the king decided to add one last feature. This one was less about the Sphinx, and more about Tutmos. After all, why be a pious ruler if no one remembers it? Tutmos, like all pharaohs, was playing the eternal game, make his name live forever. A few months into his reign, Tutmos stood before the great sphinx, watching as his workers hauled a huge slab of stone into place. This stone was an immense steeler, placed between the lion's paws, the stele showed Tutmos standing before the Sphinx, making offerings. Below the image, a text recounted the story of the prince, his dream, and the great work that he had done on behalf of the god. This was the dream stele of Tutmos IV, erected in late 1418 or early 1417 BCE. Today, it remains in its original position, and if you go to the Sphinx now, you can still see it in place. Right where Tutmos wanted it. I recounted the text of this stela last time in episode eighty five, but for those just joining us, the gist of it goes like this Tutmos the Fourth, back when he was still a prince, went riding on his chariot around the Giza plateau. Becoming tired, he stopped for a noonday nap, and then, resting in the shade of the great sphinx, he fell asleep. As he slept, he had a dream, a dream that the sphinx itself under the name Horus in the horizon, spoke to him. It told the prince to clear the monument of sand and debris, to restore its beauty for all to see. If Tutmos did this, he would become king. With this Steeler in place, Tutmos had fulfilled his promise to the great god. The sphinx was restored in its majesty, and once again it would dominate the entrance to the Giza plateau. With that prologue complete, King the IV, could now begin his reign in earnest. How was he going to make his mark? Among the new pharaoh's first acts, Tutmos decided to assert his claim to power by aggressively removing all who had opposed him. Now, whether these people disappeared into retirement, or into an untimely death, is unclear. I'll tell you what we know, and we'll go from there. Three powerful individuals had opposed Tutmos publicly. Their names were Amunhotep Sem, Ken Amun, and Queen Meritre. They were all influential figures with the ability to shape courtly opinion, and pose a threat to the new king. Obviously, they could not remain in power, or anywhere near to the throne. So what was Tutmos going to do? Sometime in Thutmose IV's reign, royal artisans visited the tombs and monuments of these rivals. Firstly, The tomb of Ken Amun, overseer of the northern cities, was attacked, and his name was chiseled out from all of his images. This denied him a peaceful afterlife, as his soul was unable to find its way home easily. Furthermore, offerings would be lost into the ether. Harsh punishment, but hey, this servant of pharaoh should have made some better choices. As for Thutmose's rival to the throne, Amun-hotep-sem, Disappears entirely from the record. If his mummy survives, we are not aware of it. If he had his own tomb anywhere, it was repurposed. The prince is effectively gone, and all that remains are the records of a stone stealer which was discovered near the Sphinx in the 1800s. Unfortunately, this stealer was discovered and then lost. People have tried to find it in museum storerooms, but it's simply gone. So, as of 2017, Amunhotep Sem is nowhere to be found. According to the excavator's notes on the stele, the prince's names had been chiseled away from the monument, so that the image lost its power. In effect, Amunhotep Sem was removed from the historical record. Was the rival prince removed from life as well? Well, that's unknown. Thutmose wasn't exactly going to publicise the fact far and wide. Different Egyptologists have different opinions, with some taking a harsh, and some taking a lenient assessment of the new king. Given the circumstances, I think that we should probably assume that Amun-hotep-sem was quietly dispatched. Whether the pharaoh ordered it himself, someone did it on his behalf, or the prince committed suicide, it seems pretty unlikely that a rival of such importance was simply going to continue living at the palace. Finally, the queen mother Meritre, Thutmose and Amunhotep Sem's grandmother, came in for her own special brand of punishment. Her tomb in the Valley of the Kings was essentially complete and ready for use in the future. It only lacked the decorations. Well, now Meritre was denied the honour of a burial in this necropolis. The tomb in the Valley of the Kings was reclaimed and given to one of Thutmose's loyal servants. As for the queen herself, well, she was either granted a reburial somewhere less notable, or simply denied a tomb altogether. We're not sure, but I'll put my money on the idea that she was granted a burial somewhere out of the way, discreet and nondescript. I doubt that even Tutmos was cruel enough to deny an Egyptian the preservation of their body. If Merit Re was to be judged for her acts, let the gods sort that out. Denying her proper burial, that would just be bad form on the part of her grandson. So, the king's rival half-brother was gone, his grandmother was in disgrace, and one of the civil servants was falling steadily down the political ladder and into obscurity. Thutmose IV was on the throne, and his claim was secure. All hail the king! The year was now 1417 BCE. Thutmose IV spent the first year of his reign at home, quietly. But pretty soon he decided that the time had come for a bit of action, specifically military action. As the second year of his reign began, the king ordered a mustering of the troops. It was time for Egyptians to demonstrate their military power once more. His target was the land of Syria. Now the Near East had been quiet from the Egyptian perspective for the last 17 years. Ever since Amun-Hotep II had led a massive and brutal campaign in his ninth year, warfare had been pretty much non-existent. Odds are there were plenty of small conflicts between the city-states and tiny kingdoms which populated this area, but the great empires, Egypt and Mitanni, were enjoying a sort of ceasefire. They weren't friends, but they weren't in direct conflict. This era of peace had survived because of one simple fact. Amunhotep hotep II was a great warrior, and no one doubted his commitment to war. Thutmose IV did not command that same respect, yet. So, he gathered his warriors and set off for Syria. He went to make a name for himself, and to remind the foreigners just who held the power in the region. For the past few decades, and 20 episodes or so, the Kingdom of Egypt has been in direct conflict with the kingdom called Mitanni. The Mitanni, dominating what is now northern Iraq, were still in power, and they were still a threat. With Amun-hotep II gone, there was no guarantee that war would not resume in the near future. So Thutmose's campaign had one simple goal. Assert his might before the Mitanni forestall any thoughts of conflict, and encourage them to keep the peace, the peace that had lasted for almost twenty years. Totmos and his troops journeyed up from Egypt to the land of Canaan, along the coast of what is now Lebanon. There, we are told that they paused at a small city called Ziduna. Ziduna was a fishing village or trading town on the coast. Today, we know Ziduna as the town of Sidon, and it is one of the largest communities in modern Lebanon. This is one of those astoundingly long-lasting cities that the Near East just throws up on a ludicrously regular basis. Well, like Muhammad Ali Pasha, Baldwin I, and Alexander the Great after him, Tutmos IV visited the town of Sidon as part of his imperial ambitions in the Near East. Tutmos came to Sidon or Ziduna with his army, and set up shop for a while. His purpose was pretty typical for the Egyptian kings in Lebanon. He came to this region to acquire timber, high quality lumber, to send back to the Nile Valley. I could probably do a whole episode on Egypt's obsession with Lebanese wood, and maybe one day I will. For now, it is enough to say that a huge portion of the wood used in Egyptian ships, palaces, and temples came from its relationships with the Lebanese communities. By dominating this region in war and trading with it in peace, the Egyptians had been exploiting Lebanese forests for more than 1200 years. So Tutmos came as part of a long-standing tradition, just one more conquering Egyptian looking for good wood. Once he secured the lumber that he wanted, Tutmos and his soldiers carried on inland. The army came to a city that the Egyptians were all too familiar with historically. Ever since the days of the great Thutmose III, Egyptian soldiers and kings had waged efforts of war against the city-state called Katna. Katna, near the modern town of Homs, was one of the most stubborn, obstinate foes the Egyptians had ever known. Although it had eventually fallen to Thutmose III, the city remained sort of a disobedient child in the family that was the Egyptian empire. Thutmose IV came to Katna in his second year, and there he did... something. One of the more frustrating aspects of Thutmose IV's reign is how little we know of his activities in the Near East. We know an incredible amount about the work of Amunhotep II and Thutmose III, but almost nothing about their successor. This is infuriating, because believe it or not, Thutmose IV was the one responsible for bringing about the most enduring and successful peace that a pharaoh ever achieved. Let me explain. A ceasefire had reigned for 17 years, since Amunhotep II had waged a savage campaign of victory. Before that, the Near East had seen about 40 years of regular, repeat, and ravaging warfare. Egypt and the Kingdom of Mitanni had been at each other's throats, year after year, campaign after campaign. But that all came to an end with Thutmose IV, when somewhere around 1417 BCE, the king organized a lasting and stable peace. Not only that, he turned the enemy that was Matani No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at luckylandslots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary, void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. In 1417 BCE, King Tutmos IV was in Syria. He and his army were set up near the city of Katna, not far from the modern town of Homs. They were there in force to make a show of strength to their enemies, in particular, the kingdom called Mitanni. But Thutmose's campaign here had a far more productive effect than simple conquest. Instead, it seems that someone took the opportunity to ask, what if the days of warfare could end? Not long after this, Egypt and Mitanni came to terms. They sealed this deal with a marriage. Not a lot is known about the details of what happened here. Maybe Tutmos and the Mitanni king met in person, or maybe there was a period of diplomatic back and forth. Messengers might have travelled from Syria into northern Mesopotamia and then back, conveying the wishes of the different parties. Regardless of how it happened, we do know the result. The king of Matani, named Artatama, decided that the time was right for a proper peace to be negotiated. The ceasefire had been successful, and nobody really wanted a return to the days of constant warfare. This wasn't because either kingdom was weak or afraid, it was simply because there were other concerns. In particular, the Matani were struggling against enemy kingdoms on their northern and eastern borders, and these kingdoms were becoming a lot more aggressive. With conflict facing them on two fronts, Artatama and his vassals, had no interest in resuming a war with Egypt. What would they gain from that? Some scraps of territory followed by a bloody reprisal from the pharaoh? No, it was better to try and secure some sort of peace here so that the Matani warlords could focus on their true enemies. Artatama communicated with Thutmose IV, and an agreement was soon reached. Now, the best part of this is that Depending on which source you read, Egyptian or Matani, the credit for seeking a peace goes to either side. Well, maybe I should say humiliation, actually. Tutmoses' records imply that the Matani came to him, begging for peace. A record from the Matani lands, meanwhile, claims that Tutmos sent no fewer than seven messages to Artatama, begging for a secure agreement. We'll have to take them both as exaggerations, I think. Frankly, I don't trust the propaganda of either side. Realistically, it doesn't matter who made the first move. What matters is the result. That being said, this is the History of Egypt podcast, and not the History of Matani. So with that in mind, here is our possibly inaccurate and totally biased account of the peace between Artatama and Thutmose IV. Some time after his campaign, maybe a month, maybe a year or more, Tutmos received a message from King Artatama. The message was simple, and it promised nothing less than peace in our time. Egypt would retain its territories and not interfere with the Mitanni. The Mitanni would stay in their borders and not interfere with Egypt. The two sides would divide Syria between them, and the land would settle into a guaranteed peace. A good deal you bet. It's how they sealed this arrangement that is most fascinating. You see, within a few months of the deal, King Artatama and Thutmose IV became bonded by a marriage. A princess of the Matani, Artatama's daughter, came to Egypt to marry the new pharaoh. In this way, the two royal houses were united as allies, and indeed as family. Now, the international scene would never be the same again. The Matani princess, whose maiden name is unknown, came to Egypt, married the pharaoh, and became the royal wife, Henut Empet. Now not much is known about Henut Empet, because not much survives of her in the historical record. What we do know is the effect that she had. Coming to Egypt, probably quite young, this princess's sacrifice Helped end four plus decades of conflict and usher in one of the most enduring eras of peace in Egyptian history. This was a peace that would create a golden age of Egyptian culture and help produce some of the most famous names in Egyptian royal history. It all began with this lesser-known princess. I would like to acknowledge her for a moment. Kenut Empet made a great sacrifice for a much greater good. So Thutmose IV returned to Egypt, and married this princess of Mitanni. With their union, the two great empires of the Near East went from being standoffish acquaintances or enemies, to loyal friends. This peace would last for more than 40 years, and lead to a golden age for all involved. So as the king came home from his campaign, and welcomed his new bride into the palace, he could look forward to a productive and healthy reign. Indeed, the next few years were going to be some very happy ones in the land of the Nile. We will have to finish there for today. As we come to our conclusion, the year is roughly 1417 or 1416 BCE. Tutmos IV is now settled into his power, and ready to embark on some domestic projects at home. I want to thank Brandon and Derek Feichter for providing the music that you hear in today's episode. Follow the link in the episode description to hear more from these two artists. They have composed a staggering number of albums of music both ambient and evocative of ancient times and different places. I highly recommend checking it out. Also... The History of Egypt podcast is a member of the Agora Podcast Network, which provides a large number of intelligent and creative shows dedicated to history, politics, and different topics. If you have a product or a service that you would be interested in advertising, consider visiting agorapodcastnetwork.com in order to promote your work. On the next episode, we will explore the second part of Tutmose's reign, up until his untimely death in the 10th year. Although his time was short, the king was still bound to achieve some noteworthy things, and some of his policies were going to have a huge impact on the country. All of this in episode 87. See you soon!